In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever heard the term vacated victory? You know, no, no. Okay, so this is a this is a technical term. This is something the NCAA does, where if there's uh, academic issues or inappropriate financial stuff going on at a school or other kinds of scandals, the NCAA will vacate victories, regular season victories, postseason victories, even whole championships. They'll take them away from teams and from coaches. They'll order that the banners that hang right in the gymnasium or the auditorium are taken down. You know, you can't act like you won this championship because even though you won the game, your misconduct has disqualified you from claiming the right to this championship. Sometimes things come to light, like um, performance-enhancing drugs, steroids that are used, and people lose their Olympic gold medals because it turns out they cheated. Even though we didn't know it at the time, their gift, their championship, is revoked. Sometimes this just happens in everyday life, too. People's opinions about us, or your, your opinions about other people, change once the skeletons in their closets start to trot out. Good feelings, good reputation can be revoked, or destroyed, or eroded. In the gospel, we have this comfort, the gifts and call of God. The call of God to you to be a son or daughter of the king. The gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life can never be withdrawn. Never, ever. There's nothing that will come in the future. There's nothing in your past that will make God change his mind about you. God doesn't reject or turn away. That's just not who he is. Instead, God gathers all who would come to him. Now, God doesn't reject, but we do reject, don't we? In, within Romans, in Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul is bringing to a close his examination of the current situation of the Jewish people. If you want to think of the whole letter of Romans, Romans 1 through 8 is Paul's explanation of the gospel. How are we justified? How are we, why do we need to be justified? What's the, what is the problem of sin? How does Jesus help us? What does baptism have to do with any of this? How do we re reckon with the sin that is still present in our lives, even though we've died to sin if we've been baptized into Christ? That's Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. In Romans 9, Paul starts out saying, well, now... Uh, brothers and sisters, I'm greatly troubled because so many of my kinsmen, the Jewish people, have rejected this gospel. And they've rejected it even though they were the ones that God chose. Abraham is their father, Isaac and Jacob. They received the promises. They received the Ten Commandments. They are the ones who saw the plagues and were delivered out of Egypt. They were given warmth by night by that pillar of fire and shade by day with the pillar of the cloud. They saw God. They were miraculously fed in the wilderness with the manna. They heard the promise of the Messiah 700 years before he was ever born. And now that he has come, they have rejected him. Or so many of them have rejected him. So what does it mean now that so many of the Jews have rejected Jesus? Did God give up on them? 
Has he said enough? All through the Old Testament, you can read about him pleading with his people. Return to me, return to me, or you're going to be punished. And then they're punished. And he says, I'll have compassion on you. I will bring you back. And then he brings them back. And then they still sin again. By the way, you all do the same thing. So do I. We're not that different from them. In fact, we're exactly the same as them. Has he given up on them? Is that why the gospel has gone out to the rest of the world? Because God is tired of dealing with the Israelite nation? By no means, Paul says. A very strong construction in the Greek language. By no means. Absolutely not, in other words. Instead, the Jews' rejection of Jesus was not a surprise to Jesus. God's chosen people were sinful, like you and me, and so even at the very foot of Mount Sinai, Moses went up there, he was up there for, do you remember how long? 40 days, I think it was, right? Up the top of the mountain. And he comes down, and the people, you know, Moses has gone up there. There's obviously the presence of God at the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses comes back down, and what are they doing? Do you remember this? They're saying, Moses, we're so glad you came back. We are really excited to worship God. We really want to worship the one true God, and we definitely haven't built a golden calf for ourselves. No, in fact, that's exactly what they did. They left Egypt, asked all their neighbors, hey, do you have any gold? And their neighbors, who are terrified of these people because God keeps destroying their nation because of them, they're like, take all of it. Take our silver, our gold, all of our riches. They plunder Egypt on the way out, and they get to the foot of Mount Sinai. The presence of God is there above them. Moses is about to come back with how we are now to live as God's people, and they have melted down all that gold into an idol of an Egyptian god. Which is kind of like getting in a big fight with your family on the way home from church. I suppose you could say. Or on the way to church. Or on Sunday night, you know? It sounds like, oh, those Jewish people there, those Israelites, they're so ridiculous. Why couldn't they just get it together? But, I mean, we read those stories and we see ourselves there, don't we? In fact, Isaiah the prophet explains that because the nation of Israel had turned away from God and was consumed with idolatry, right? This is a thing that continued on through generations, hundreds of years, all the way through the judges, Samson, all the way through the prophets like Samuel, And Elijah, the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, the divided nation, all the way to the days of Isaiah. Israel had not only betrayed God, but they also became useless for the task for which God commissioned them. God said, you're going to be my nation, and part of that means that I'm going to live with you as your God. But it also means that you, Israel, are going to be a light to the nations. I'm not just the God for you. You don't just get the benefit of this. The whole world is going to through you, Israel. But because of their idolatry, they weren't fit for that job anymore. And so in the book of Isaiah, God says, I am going to send another servant to the nations. This is Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. Every time you hear the word you here, it's singular, like one person he's talking to, not, not plural, like the, the nation of Israel. He's talking to one person. It's Jesus. One person. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them, 
and you will be a light to guide the nations. Which sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said when he stood up in the temple in John 8 and said, I am the light of the world. If anyone comes to me, he will not walk in darkness. So the Jewish rejection of God dates much further back than Jesus. But in fact, it's because of that Jewish rejection of God that Jesus came. First for the house of Israel, then for the rest of the world. Jesus was sent with, you could call it, for lack of a better term right now, a a Jewish priority. He was promised to Israel. He was born an ethnic and religious Jew. He was born into that community. His whole upbringing was in that community. His whole life and ministry was primarily within that community. Every now and then, a woman, a Canaanite woman in the Gospels comes to him and says, Lord, son of David, help me. She, she's not a Jew. She does, like, all of the Old Testament, you know, in, in the Old Testament, this woman is one of those enemies, one of those wicked Canaanites that were pushed out of the promised land. Now in the gospel, uh, this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, son of David, help me. She worships him. And Jesus says this thing to her that sounds kind of harsh. It's not actually that harsh. It just sounds harsh to us. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. If it makes you feel better, say it's not right to give the children's food to the puppies. He's not calling her a dog. He's saying, Children's have food prepared for them. Puppies, dogs have food. Pets have food prepared for them. It's not right to take the thing that belongs to the children and give it to the pet. She says, yeah, but. Something, if you've had a dog, you know. Those things eat the scraps that fall off the table. Or the things that the little kids reach down and, you know, broccoli, if they don't like broccoli, maybe. And he says, great is your faith. He he says to her, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. I was sent to help the people of Israel. Yet both Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew make clear that Jesus was sent into the world not to just save Israel, but to save all. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel because that's just the way God ordained that his plan to save the whole world was going to come about. Isaiah 45 God says, let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. Which sounds a lot like in Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. The Gospel of Matthew After Jesus has died for us on the cross, risen again for our justification, he comes to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Take this to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So this is the point that Paul is making in Romans 11. That the Jewish rejection of Messiah Jesus or Jesus Christ isn't an indication that God has given up on them. This isn't like God's judgment on them, that their hearts are all hardened and they don't accept the gospel and they're destined for hell, every single one of them. That's not what is going on here. In fact, 
Jesus being sent into the world means that God has not given up on them. Paul puts an exclamation mark on this when he says in Romans eleven twenty nine, God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. He promised them, you are my chosen people. You are my own holy possession. I will get glory in the whole earth because of you. God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. God doesn't make promises that he changes his mind on because of our performance. God doesn't get tired of being faithful to you and me, even though we are so faithless to him. That's not who God is. God doesn't push out. God gathers in. If God could just withdraw his gifts, the gospel would lose all of its comfort. Because we wouldn't have security in it. It would be nice for now, maybe. Jesus saved me. He forgave my sins until I mess up bad enough for God to just give up on me. Right? Think of the precedent that it would set for God to just give up on the Israelites. To give up on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their children. That would mean that when we say your sins are forgiven and Jesus loves you... God's mind might change about that at some point in the future. And that's no gospel, and if that's the case, we shouldn't even be here. Because that would be a waste of time. But in fact, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God will not change his mind about us because we have sinned too much. God said thousands of years ago, and he still says today, I will bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. That's you and me. We're the foreigners from that perspective because we're Gentiles. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. That is the church. He has brought you here and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will fill them with joy because they will know that their sins are forgiven, that the God who created the universe is not angry with them, is not annoyed with them, but in fact loves them dearly enough to send his only son into the world to be their ransom. God gathers. He does not reject. God sent Jesus into the world to save the lost sheep of Israel And therefore, God sent Jesus into the world to save you. You and I, we're not physically descended from Abraham, I'm guessing. We're not of the tribes of Israel. We are part of God's holy nation because of Christ. We are the wild olive shoots that have been grafted into the tree. We are part of God's holy nation in Christ, because we believe that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, to be raised to life, to break the power of death for us, and to open the gates to eternal life. In Christ, God's irrevocable gift and his call has gone out not only to the house of Israel, but to the house of Israel and to the whole world. God is not taking the championship trophy away from the Jews and giving it to us Gentiles. Because you know what? You and I would just lose it too. 
our victory would be vacated inevitably because of our misconduct when it comes to finances or interpersonal relationships or sexual immorality or whatever it might be, we would give it up. Instead, God sent his own son to be our champion. Jesus has won a victory that he will never lose. And you who are united to him by faith share in his victory to eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.